those who would truly follow Jesus must carefully consider the cost of discipleship. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. Got a question for you. Does anybody here have any interest in becoming a U.S. Navy SEAL? Who would like to be a U.S. Navy SEAL? Anybody? Okay, we've got uh, one hand go up there. Well, you know, I, I think it'd be, it's quite a prestigious position to hold uh, in the U.S. military, isn't it? Uh, what a great pre- prestigious position. But I want you to know, though, but before you run out and enlist, you might want to consider the cost. That is, consider what you need to do in order to qualify as a Navy SEAL. Uh, Here are some of the preliminary minimum physical requirements, all right? These are preliminary minimum physical requirements, and you have to meet this just to be able to go on for training as a SEAL, okay? Here you are. You have to be able to swim 1,000 yards in under 20 minutes. Yep, this guy's out already here. (laughs) How about this one? 70 push-ups in under 2 minutes. 60 curl-ups in under 2 minutes. At least 10 pull-ups in under 2 minutes. And run 4 miles in under 31 minutes. That's just to get in for training, all right? And those are the minimum, minimum requirements there. So if you can meet all of those bare minimum requirements, then you are admitted to further SEAL training, which is an incredibly rigorous and demanding one-and-a-half-year process. And besides the intense physical demands, there are also rigorous intellectual, emotional, and psychological demands. You know, there is at one point in the training, you only get about four hours of sleep in total during a a five-and-a-half-day period. The days are long, about 20 hours at a time, and you will push your butt. While you're doing all that, getting only that much sleep, you will run more than 200 miles. You also then, but besides that, you also can look forward to simulated drowning, and torture. They actually torture you. Only about 10% of those who apply make it. So, who still wants to be a SEAL? Anybody here? Come on, Tony, you raised your hand before. At 18 years old, you bet. (laughs) Well, I think we could all agree that it would be very foolish to apply for SEAL training without first considering all of that, wouldn't we? We need to consider the cost. Consider what's involved. Now, Jesus also laid out some requirements for those who would seek to be his disciple. And fortunately, it doesn't include all of those bare minimum seal physical requirements. But it is still pretty demanding nevertheless. And while the seal program of training lasts for about a year and a half, how long do you think the program of training lasts to be a disciple of Jesus? 
That's a lifetime. That's a lifetime training program there. So I'll ask you, who wants to be a disciple of Jesus? Who wants to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, before you answer that, though, you might want to consider the cost. <laughs> what is the cost, you ask? What does Jesus require of those who would be his disciples, his students, his followers, his learners? Well, our text today in the Gospel of Luke will tell us all about that. We're continuing here in our series called Unique, the Life, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is a harmony of the various gospel accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John put together in one flowing account following the order as suggested in this book by John MacArthur called One Perfect Life. And for today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 14, Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 35, in which we are challenged to consider the cost. Consider the cost of what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. And so what's the big idea? What's the big idea of this message? What do I want us to take away from it? What is this right here? Those who would truly follow Jesus must carefully consider the cost of discipleship. Consider the requirements that Jesus has. If we're going to be his disciples, his learners, his followers. Before we look at our text in Luke chapter 14, a little context here. Uh, Jesus has been ministering in the vicinity of Jerusalem. And the people, the Jewish people, were very eager for the arrival of their Messiah. And they looked to his coming in order to set them free from the oppression of Rome and to restore the kingdom of Israel, to bring the nation to great prominence, power, and glory. This is what they were waiting and expecting for their Messiah to do. And Jesus was drawing very large crowds. The people were amazed by some of the things he said. They were stunned by the miracles that he did. But he would sometimes say things that were very surprising to them or perhaps very difficult to accept. He would say, for example, how there would be that many of God's chosen people, the Jews, not many of them would enter the kingdom, but there would be many Gentiles who would enter the kingdom. This was surprising news. But then also, though, he would say some things that would confound them and didn't make any sense at all, and it seemed that he wanted something more from them then many were willing to give. And he said, you cannot be my disciple if you don't give this. He demanded that they first count the cost. Consider what it is that Jesus is calling us to, the life he is calling us to if we are going to truly be his disciples, his followers. So let's start in Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, Steve, thank you. (laughs) Jesus is in the house of a Pharisee on the Sabbath. Who thinks this is not going to end well, right? But here we are. 
So one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So first we see a Sabbath healing. Jesus had been invited to eat this Sabbath meal at the home of a prominent Pharisee. And present there was a man who was suffering from a terrible disease called dropsy. Dropsy is a condition of excess fluid in the tissues tissues of the body, perhaps caused by a type of cancer or a liver or kidney problem. It's interesting, you might wonder, why do you suppose this man who had this condition was at this meal at this Pharisee's house? Do you think it was by chance that this man with this condition was at this Pharisee's house on a Sabbath? Was he there because of the kind heart of the Pharisee who wanted to extend courtesy to his fellow Jew? No, why do you think he was there? It was a setup. The Pharisee had brought this man in order to try to trap Jesus, seeing what he would do with him. Because after all, it's the Sabbath and what? You can't work on the Sabbath and healing someone, that's work. Now, is that truly a violation of God's word? No, it isn't. But to the Pharisees it was, right? Because they had added all their own rules and regulations to what God had said. Fortunately, we don't do that ever today, do we? We don't ever add to God's word, right? But they had. And so Jesus immediately takes the initiative, and he knows what's going on here. And he takes the initiative in this situation. And he asks the host and the other guests, would it be lawful to heal the man on the Sabbath? Now, they had brought this man here for that express purpose, to set up this confrontation. But when he comes right out and asks them, is it lawful to heal? Interesting, they're, they're silent. They don't have anything to say about it. But Jesus goes ahead and heals the man. And then he says, tell me, which of you, you Pharisees and you lawyers here, which of you, if your, your son or even an animal of yours had fallen into a well and was in distress on the Sabbath, would you not lift him up? Now that's work, isn't it? Pulling somebody up out of a well. How about pulling an ox up out of a well? That's work, right? They said, which of you, if that happened on a Sabbath, which of you would not pull them up? And of course, the answer is, is every single one of them would, right? But they had nothing to say. How much more so then, if you would do that, how much more so then is it lawful then to heal a man of a terrible disease on the Sabbath or any day? So Jesus is setting the stage, though, for a discussion to follow 
concerning those who were considered ceremonially unclean and therefore unable to enter the kingdom. Look at what he says now. Look at Luke 14, starting in verse 7. It says, Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See a parable here of a wedding feast. Looking around, Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor. You see, there was the seats, there was the, the really good seats, and then there's the other seats. And guess who, won, who made a beeline for the really good seats, the places of honor? The ones who thought they were so important and above others, right? But of course, is Jesus talking about a literal wedding feast here? No, it's a parable, right? So who are those ones who want to come and take the best seats? The ones who think that they're so much better than the others and they should have the places of honor at the feast? The Pharisees, right? Meanwhile, who should get the who should get the uh, the other seats? Well, well, you know the the great unwashed, right? <laughs> Those people. Hmm. So the closer a person was to the host, the greater that guest position of honor. So everybody was scrambling to get the seats nearest the head of the table. But Jesus wanted to get them to think about the spiritual realities in relation to this kingdom message that he had been preaching. So he tells this story. Don't, don't go in seeking the places of honor. Take the lower and, and let, the, let the host come and say, here, come and take this place of honor. And he re- concludes it by saying what? Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exhausted. Exhausted? Well, exalted too. (laughs) Exhausted. I got about three hours of sleep last night, and it just came through right there, didn't it? Right? Exalted or exhausted. Maybe both. I don't know. But this recalls Jesus' earlier statement about those who are last will be first. And those who were first will be last. So these Pharisees and others who thought that they were so important, they would be humbled. But the humbled would be lifted up and exalted in the kingdom. goes on to say in Luke 14, verse 12, He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet... 
Do not invite your friends or your brothers. By the way, there's a spider crawling around up here who has invited himself. Should we let him stay here? He's got the place of honor up here on the pulpit right here, it looks like. So, okay. So normally, actually, I'm one of those weird people that I don't like to kill bugs. If there's a bug in the house, I like to catch it and put it outside. How many of you are like that? We got anybody like that? Okay, some of you. How many of you are ready to just squish that thing right there? All right. I see we're kind of equally divided here on this. Don't worry, buddy. I'll protect you from them. So, all right. Where was I now? I don't know. Where were we? Um, oh, okay. Right. We're got to read the text here, right? Okay, Luke 14, verse 12. It says, He also said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. And the first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I... Go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And so the servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Another parable about a great banquet here. Of course, is Jesus really talking about an earthly banquet? He's talking about a great heavenly celebration banquet, isn't he? And so Jesus speaks to this host and he tells him that if he would invite the outcasts of society, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, people who could never repay him for his generosity, this would show that he was ministering to them for the Lord's sake and not for his own. And he would be laying up for himself treasures in heaven. And there's the spider again. I was wondering where he went. There he is right there. Inviting the outcasts would not make the man righteous, but it would testify that he was in righteous standing before God. 
And Jesus then tells a parable about a great banquet. One of the diners expressed a blessing on everyone who would eat in the kingdom. And this person was assuming that he and other people present would all be present in the kingdom. Why? Because they were important people, right? But Jesus tells this parable in order to explain that many of the people who thought they would be there would not be present in God's kingdom at all. And in their place instead would be the humble outcasts and, dare I say it, who else? Gentiles. The host in the parable invited many guests, but so many of them they had excuses for why they couldn't come. This one had just purchased a field. This one had just purchased some oxen. This one had just recently married. We're, we're busy. I've got other things to do right now. So the host became angry and he commands them, well then go out to those streets and alleys of the town, invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. So Jesus was referring to those members of the Jewish committee, uh, community who were considered inferior and ceremonially unclean, as was the man with dropsy who he had just healed. And when the host learned that there was still room for more, he commanded what? Go out in the roadways and the highways and the, and the lanes. And who are these folks? Gentiles. And he says that none of those originally invited would be a guest, would get a taste of the banquet. The people who had originally been offered that, because they rejected it now, this message was going to go out to others, to the humble, to Gentiles. The excuses seemed good to those who gave them, but they were inadequate reasons for refusing Jesus' offer. And nothing was important then, nor is it now, is so important as receiving the offer of Jesus to come to this heavenly banquet. This sounds pretty good. I want to get in on this banquet. Who wants to get in on this? Wait a minute. Not so fast. I think we have enough. We had Steve. Now we've got, uh, was, that, was that Pam? Was that you? Oh, that was Shelly. Oh. Okay. All right. What was that, Shelly? <laughs> okay. What else it says? Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. There's all the crowds. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it, 
Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Okay, who still wants to be his disciple? Hmm. See, there's a cost. There is a cost of discipleship. The crowds were large. They were following. Why? Because we want in on this. This is great. But Jesus says, wait a minute. If you really want to be my follower... You must renounce everyone and everything. Hmm. So to emphasize that discipleship is difficult, Jesus said some things that, understand, we are not to take these words literally. Now they express a literal truth, but it's what? Figurative language. Is Jesus actually telling you and me if we're going to be his true followers, we need to hate everybody. <laughs> we need to hate. I know the world might think that, some of that accusation, right? No, we're not to hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even our own lives. He's using very strong hyperbolic language to make a point. What is that point? That he comes first, that we are to love him first, and that our love for him is to be so great, it's our love for our family is, is like hatred by comparison. Of course, we don't hate our family. In fact, the more we love Jesus and the more we follow Jesus, the more we what? Love our family, right? So it's about priority and the priority of love. He comes before family. And in fact, it comes even before the love of our very own lives. The loving him, following him, is more important than anyone or anything in this life, even our family, even our very lives. Another difficult qualification Jesus stresses here is that one must carry his or her own cross and follow Jesus. What does that mean to carry your cross and follow? What was the cross? It was a symbol of what? Of suffering and death. Okay, who still wants to follow Jesus? To willingly enter into the possibility of suffering and death for him, for his name. By the way, there were many in those days, that's exactly what happened to them, suffered and died for their faith. And there's many that's happening right now in this world around us today, isn't it? Are you willing for that? So using these illustrations, Jesus is teaching us, following him is no casual matter. It's a serious decision. It requires planning and thought and sacrifice. It gives an illustration of someone who's going to build a tower 
And he starts working on it before checking to see, okay, does he have enough to complete the tower? Nope, he just goes ahead and starts building it. And then, oh, doesn't have enough to finish it. Some of you may have seen this was in the, in the news before. I've, I've shown pictures of it here before. Some years back now, there was someone who was determined to build a, a new skyscraper in Chicago. It was going to be called the Chicago Spire. It's going to be 2,000 feet tall down on the, just, uh, on, just off Lakeshore Drive near the North Pier there. And I was really looking forward to it because I love skyscrapers. I love architecture. I love the city skyline. And I was really looking forward to this 2,000-foot-tall building on the lakeshore there. Well, they got started with it. They put the hole, the big hole in the ground. And guess what? This, this person did this did that without actually having all the money lined up first. You believe that? An actual story of someone really doing this. He thought, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll secure the fine. We'll, we'll get started. We'll get the fine. It'll all fall into place. Well, then what happens? A recession. And then some of the, and it's like, uh-oh. And then all of a sudden, so much for the Chicago Spire. And now it was just this big hole in the ground just off Lakeshore Drive. We say, well, that's foolish. Well, Jesus is saying, oh, you want to be my disciple? Well, wait a minute. You need to love me more than anyone or anything, even your very own life. I come first. And there may be pain, and well, not maybe, there will be pain and sacrifice that comes from following Jesus, isn't there? Gives another illustration of the king going out to battle. It's like, oh, you know what? That other army is stronger than mine. Maybe I shouldn't engage in this battle. Maybe I should make peace terms here. Think about what you're doing. So there is a cost to following Jesus. Now let me ask you, do you think that cost to following Jesus is worth it? Infinitely so, eternally so, isn't it? But Jesus finishes up by saying something here I think is a challenge to me for all of us here. If we will truly be his followers, his disciples, look at what he says next, Luke 14, verses 34 and 35. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. How many of you heard what Jesus just said there? Hmm, he's talking about yeah, I want to get in on this, Jesus. I want to be your follower. Oh, wait a minute. You really want to be my follower? Then he says, well, I come first. And there will be pain. There may be persecution. Think about it before you say, yes, I will follow you. And then these mysterious words, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, 
How shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use. Either for the soil or the manure pile, it is thrown away. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. What is he saying? He doesn't want his followers to be worthless salt. See, salt is, only, is good only as long as it contains the characteristics of its saltiness. If it loses its saltiness, it has no value then, does it? You know, the same is true of disciples of Jesus. They must contain the characteristics of discipleship or they are of no value at all. What good is it to say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but he really doesn't come first in your life. You're really not prepared to make any sacrifice. You're not prepared to endure. What, is that the kind of salt that's going to preserve and flavor a lost, dark, dying world? No, it's worthless, isn't it? A follower who is a follower by mouth only and not in truth, in character, in deed, is worthless salt. How can we impact the world if we're not salty, if we don't have the flavor and the character of Jesus in us? Consider the cost. Consider the cost. Following Christ requires a commitment. Dare I say it? A radical commitment. And again, he's not encouraging hatred or abandonment of our loved ones. But rather, he is urging us to prioritize him above all else. And the depth of our love for Jesus should be so profound that our love for anyone or anything else appears as hatred in comparison. We're to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, to follow him wholeheartedly, willing to suffer for him or even die. It requires self-sacrifice and surrender. It demands that we let go of our own desires and ambitions and comforts. And he asks us to evaluate our priorities and to put him first in every aspect of our lives. We cannot be half-hearted followers of Christ. We must be willing to surrender everything for his sake. And he cautions saying that if salt loses its flavor, it becomes useless. And so similarly, as disciples, if we compromise in our commitment to Christ, we lose our effectiveness as his representatives in the world because we are called to be salt and light in a decaying and dark world. And our commitment to Jesus then should flavor every aspect of our lives, influencing our words, our relationships, our actions. And when we compromise our dedication to him, we diminish our impact and fail to fulfill that purpose. It's true that the cost of discipleship is high, but the rewards are out of this world, right? The rewards are immeasurable. And the rewards are, no, are not only out of this world, the rewards, the rewards are in this world as well, aren't they? So he challenges us to examine our hearts, to assess our commitment, to surrender everything to follow him. 
prioritizing him above everything else. Our love for him should be so profound that it permeates every area of our lives and shapes every decision and action. It's not an easy path, but it is a path that is filled with purpose and meaning and eternal significance. So may we then respond to his call with courage and determination and relying on his grace and his strength to empower us. And may our lives shine as light in the world, as salt that preserves and flavors the world. So what? What am I to do with this today? Well, I would remind us, those who would truly follow Jesus must carefully consider the cost of discipleship. Have you heard the kingdom call? Have you heard a call on your life to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you carefully considered the cost of following Christ, which means what? He comes first. He's first in everything. And you may suffer for him. And are you good salt? Don't be worthless salt that loses its flavor. Be good salt that maintains the flavor of Christ, whose love, his truth, permeates every aspect of our being. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. I pray, Father, then, perhaps there's someone here who's hearing a call to repent and to believe. Energize that person's mind and will, we pray, to respond in faith to that call. Perhaps someone here is understanding for the first time what it really means to follow Jesus, that it's not just a set of doctrines to be believed. We certainly must believe those doctrines, those truths. But it's more that it's a life. It's a life of, entr- of entrusting ourselves to you and placing you first, Lord Jesus, in everything. Loving you more than anyone or anything. Dying to self. Being willing to follow you wherever you lead. No matter the cost. Knowing that the end, the reward, is in there. May we be salty salt, I pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.